Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. As we come to God's Word tonight, it's a privilege to have John Hayward in the pulpit again. If you have been a part of Westminster for a while, then this is not new for you. John and I were counting, we think this is close to a dozen times that he's been in our pulpit over the years as he's come under care of our presbytery and been licensed in the presbytery and served our church well. So we're delighted to have John with us as he brings God's word tonight. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, whose light is perfect, converting souls, and whose testimony is true, providing wisdom, would you please, because you are merciful, would you shine your light from your Word to our minds that are blind without you, and show us good things from your Holy Word. And grant us your Holy Spirit that He might tear out of our souls all trust in ourselves and all wisdom of our flesh and subdue and destroy anything in us that is hostile to You. Lord, lead Your wandering sheep back to the truth, whether they've been wandering for minutes, hours, days, or years, so that we might confess with our mouths and with the fruits in our lives that You truly are our God. Father, we ask You to give us these things through the name of Your beloved Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, marriage uh, is a word that's certainly in a bit of a mess these days. It's a word in a mess. Whether it's been through laws uh, or popular conceptions, sources of cultural power, marriage has been dismissed, derided, and degraded. But while the word and the concept sometimes today seem to be in free fall, the institution itself is not undone at all, right? It's, it's, it's blessings, the blessings of marriage, the beauties of marriage might be missed out on, but since it is part of God's good creation and part of God's multi-general plan of redemption, it will continue to stand. Marriage will continue to stand and serves God's purposes. Now, Ephesians 5, 20, Ephesians 5, uh, 21 uh, to 32 that we're going to look at this evening, uh, gives us insight on both levels. Uh, it, it gives us insight and counsel about how we should live according to God's created design for marriage, uh, and it gives us insight into God's purpose for marriage, God's greatest purpose in marriage, which is the glory of His Son, our Lord Jesus. And, and the confusion I hope you're excited to hear about marriage, uh, because the confusion in our world about marriage provides a great opportunity for us to point the world to Scripture's resources. And I, I want to walk through the passage, uh, 521 uh, through 33, uh, in, under four headings. Context, wives and a word, husbands do's and don'ts, and summing it all up. I worked hard on that last one. 
So context, wives in a word, husbands do's and don'ts, summing it all up. And, and throughout it all, we'll see that in the context, this is sort of the thesis statement, that in the context of reflecting and magnifying the glorious work of Christ, God gives both wives and husbands their own distinct focus in the marriage relationship. However, before we dive into the text and listen to it read, I want to address people, different audiences that I assume are here, and how perhaps you can listen to this text. So first, for husbands and wives, if you are married, please listen for yourself and not your spouse. The Holy Spirit will work on them and will also custom fit for you what this word would say to the particulars of your life. So listen for yourself and not for your spouse. Second, if you are not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here. Please don't just consider this small piece of the Scriptures. Consider the whole thing, and consider how wonderful Christ is and how He guides and cares for His people in the little details of their domestic lives. And finally, I also suggest that you consider the beauty and practicality of Christian marriage. I don't think you will find another religion or system of belief that offers such a perfect balance in marriage of definitive structure and yet flexibility in its vision. Third, if you are a Christian who is not married, this is still for you. For you might be married someday, and it's easier to build a foundation before you build the house rather than building them both at the same time. So let the truth seep in now, and it will be a resource if you do get married. Also, like I said, there is a lot of confusion about marriage, and knowing and yourself being attracted to the biblical message on marriage will open up doors for you to testify and clarify to not just the coherence, the, the sense of Scripture on marriage, but as we'll see, it will give you very obvious opportunities to proclaim who Jesus is and what He has done. So, let's read the text, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his, own, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects 
her husband. So we're going to look at context, wives and a word, husband do's and don'ts, and summing it all up. So first, context. Also a word for those of you who track time by the number of points and where I am in a sermon, just know that not all points will be equally allotted time. So, context. Here, verse, verse 21 concludes a section that began at verse 515 about being full of the Spirit and what being full of the Spirit looks like, submitting to one another out of reverence, out of fear of Christ. And again, this is a pattern throughout all of Ephesians. You see, the, the, the ground and cause of the command is regarding the person of Jesus Christ. But the same pattern is in chapter 4, verse 32. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, so this is broad application section that goes all the way back to chapter 4, verse 1, and applies to all Christians, and that's the direct context for the section that we're looking at if we were to look at this verse, these verses all the way up to 6, 9. Now, look at verses 22 to 24 for wives and a word. That's why I told you not all points would be the same amount of time. So, we've seen the context, wives and a word. The word for wives is submit. And I want to examine the clear meaning here, but to get ready, let's also see three things that it is not saying. This does not say women submit to men. The passage does not teach female submission to males. It is addressing marriage relational roles. Now, the Bible has more to say about men and women and how God made them to live, mature, and interact. And Paul's quote, without introduction of Genesis 2 here, shows that he's assuming there's a background of all of that. But here, this passage, so there's much more we could say, but this passage is not teaching women to submit to men. These verses also, secondly, are not just a specific example of a general principle. These verses are not just a specific example of a general principle, right? The word submit comes from verse 21, and Paul's using that to rhetorical effect to make it enjoyable to listen to and easier to understand, as sub- but, it sh- but it should not be understood as submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, you know, for example, wives submitting to husbands, all these general commands in the Bible apply to marriage, and that's essential. That's essential to emphasize that all the general commands do apply to marriage, but this passage is doing more than just one application of a general principle, because look at verse 23. It references headship as the reason, and that cannot be a general principle. Headship is the reason, and that flows out of the creation account we see in Genesis 2, etc. So we know that Paul is saying something specific about roles in marriage and not just using it as an illustration of some broad, generic, one-another passage. Finally, third thing that this does not say, it does not say obey. It does not say obey like it does to children in 6.1 and slaves or bondservants in 6.5. So it's not a casual change of word. Paul uses the more relationally complex word submit, and its rationale flows from Genesis 2. That's what it does not say, but what does the text say? The text here says that wives, as Christ's beloved, 
and on His account should submit to their own husbands, which reflects the church's submission to Christ. Wives should, to perhaps use more familiar words, so follow, support, respect, come alongside of, commit to the mission of, give deference to the decision of, submit to their husbands. And in each marriage, this will play out very differently, but that is the plain reading of this part of God's holy word. Wives should follow, support, respect, come alongside of, commit to the mission of, give deference to the decision of, submit to their own husbands. I've noticed and experienced it myself that when we encounter such passages, we can start sort of fretting, (coughs) coughing, making like a rash is breaking out because we find that we have some Bible allergies, right? So seasonal allergies happen at a certain time of year, and Bible allergies (coughs) happen when we come to certain passages, right? Perhaps especially when we are with certain people, right? Or imagine certain people's objections or concerns or questions to a passage in mind, right? I imagine especially for any of you who perhaps brought a guest who isn't a Christian today, you might wish that we were just on a different topic or a different passage. Let's go back to Second Peter, please, and talk about uh, chains enslaved or something like that, right? But again, we, but we shouldn't. We have these Bible allergies, but we actually shouldn't come to Scripture, to the Bible, and expect it to make us more comfortable, especially more comfortable regarding our preferences and our culture. In fact, it's a testimony to the truthfulness of Scripture that rightly understood it cuts against all of us and across all cultures and all aspects of life. We shouldn't expect the Word of a holy God to put sinners at ease necessarily with their assumptions. So, so when we experience these Bible allergies— it's a sign of a disorder in us, not in the Bible. And our culture in the United States, generally speaking, makes us especially vulnerable to these allergies and having an allergic reaction when any system of authority, accountability, or hierarchy is discussed. So, so with this, our, our culture conditions us to ask uncharitable or cynical questions about this teaching. Like, wait, does that mean that a husband makes all the decisions and the wife just needs to quit talking and do what's said, right, or not ask questions, and the wife should just say yes all the time? Right? Our imaginations can go on and on like this uh, with, uh, with kind of an uncharitable approach to the text. But, and they are good questions, though, and we can imagine other people's objections to this as well as we think about how would I talk about what was the evening sermon on tomorrow morning. And they are good questions as long as they're looking for answers, but we can so easily put Christian marriage into a simplistic picture and make it into some sort of stereotype of bossiness and demands from some sort of authority. But but if we pause, I don't know what the analogy for allergies would be, take some, some, I don't know, some scriptural Benadryl, right, and sort of relax and let the reality of flourishing Christian marriages let us know that it's so much more complex, so much richer, and the whole authority in Scripture has to be considered. Consider how good leaders in any setting operate, do not operate only in the mode of do what I say now, 
No good leader operates in that mode. And we recognize this in business and government and churches. And the same was true, of course, as any kind of authority structure that there would be in the home. A good leader does not lord it over them, Jesus says, of those under him. And Christians never, Christians never think that a position of authority implies a person of superiority. It never thinks that, right? There are, though, however, real authority structures in the midst of humans equally made in the image of God. And and from the perspective of one following, of one supporting, submitting, we recognize that fruitful following, fruitful following in any context, but especially in marriage, does not consist in being a yes-man. Pushback, questioning, disagreeing, laying out alternatives, arguing, embracing constructive conflict, getting outside counsel, and sometimes calling the proper civil authorities are all part of being an effective and fruitful follower, right? And and far from any of these activities, pushback, questioning, disagreeing, etc., diminishing authority, they support it and they build it up. A proper authority structure, because it removes some sort of power and persuasion dynamic, where the more persuasive one or the more powerful one is the one who's always ruling, a proper authority structure allows for more profitable disagreement, more back and forth. Being an engaged person who respects and supports authority roles and blesses them is so much more than just being someone who wants to be told what to do. So, submission in marriage is not a simple thing, but has complexities and intricacies that will look very different in each marriage. These are binding principles, but these commands around headship and submission, and and they are commands, they are binding principles and they're commands, but they are not a formula. They are not a formula for who should make the most money or who should do the dishes. But the intimacy and complexity of this structure that God has built into marriage make everything we would read in Ephesians 4.1 to where we are now all the more important. Speaking the truth in love, etc., bearing one another's burdens, etc., all the more important. Marriage is an intense relationship that makes all those other general commands, like bearing one another's burden, showing respect, speaking the truth in love, all the more important. All it requires a foundation of all the other aspects of love, apart from the particularities of marriage. Therefore, we want to rejoice in the relational roles that God has given to husbands and wives because the role and focus differentiation, the role and focus differentiation in marriage as husband and wife are like the sexual differentiations as man and woman in marriage. The differences brought together in one flesh enhance the relationship, and are what allow for it to be the picture of Christ and the church that it is. The differences enhance the relationship like they do in the sexual one flesh union. Sadly, of course, the reality is those objections, those questions have too many realistic stories behind them. Stories and experiences of abuse and neglect have left a dark shadow on our imagination when it comes to texts like this. Abuse distorts 
and confuses all marriage all the more. Again, it doesn't undo God's good design, but it is a perverted darkness of Satan that undermines the proclamation of the gospel. And that leads to one final observation in verses 22 to 24. One final observation. Notice here that Paul directly addresses wives. He assumes that they are present and full, engaged, regular members of the community, and he speaks directly to them. God speaks directly to wives. This assumes, and this is instructive for us, this assumes, it's assuming that wives are students of the apostolic teaching, students of Scripture, right? Women, the holy God Almighty speaks directly to you in the Scriptures. You are a son inheriting all your father's riches. You are part of the royal priesthood of believers. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You do not need men to study Scripture for you. You should study it and listen to it yourself. You don't need a priest, a church authority, or a husband, or a father, or some blogger to study it for you and tell you what it teaches. Paul is assuming that Christian wives are women of the Word, under the Word, in the Word. And let us also note that it never says that husbands should instruct their wives in submissiveness. It never even hints at saying that. It says things directly to wives, and in its nature—the Word doesn't work without this—in its nature, submission is always voluntary. It is always an individual free decision and choice. For wives, it is the right and godly choice, but it is their choice. So let's transition again, since I've already started in saying what, husband, what it doesn't say to husbands. And let's, let's look at husbands' do's and don'ts in 25 to 32. So we see in this longer passage, 25 to 32, that Paul's do's and don'ts are based on two pictures, two comparisons. Right? We could see them as language of sacrifice to sanctify and, 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 and identifying to nourish. So two pictures here in the husband's do's and don'ts. First, sacrifice to sanctify. Again, this is in verses 25 to 32. As Paul speaks to husbands, he intensifies the call he's already given in five verse, chapter 5, verse 1, by laying out a detail for husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The command is to love sacrificially, to bless, to sanctify, to make her more glorious. And sacrifice, giving oneself up, implies death. Right? The word sacrifice, the, the giving oneself up, implies death. So husbands, how can you seek her good in a way that costs you? What is in you that is dying so she might flourish? Is it your dreams, comfort, ambition, certain friendships, certain hobbies? And notice that it's not just where you, you, you do your sacrifice for your own desires, right? All adults know that things cost things, that you need to sacrifice to get your own desires. This is directing to sacrifice with an intentional purpose, her bless blessing and flourishing, right? Husbands know that sometimes, certain in any relationship, right, to get something we want to accomplish, certain tasks we need to do to give something up or change something, 
But this is not talking about some sort of give and take like any other relationship has give and take. It's not saying give of yourself to get. It's give of yourself up as part of glorifying your wife. It means seeking her good, and sacrificial love for her good does not mean doing whatever she wants. Love sees beyond people's momentary desires. Brothers, I I find myself so often in this situation seeking a happy wife at a bargain deal rather than a flourishing wife at personal sacrifice. Right? This is, what leads, this is what behind so often my emotional check-ins with my wife, right? Sort of, how are you doing, right? Because I want to kind of like see either explicitly or implicitly, are you happy? Are you content? Are you satisfied? Right? Because happy wife, happy life, right? Like, I, I care about her, and it's nicer to live with a happy person. So I wanted to say, like, are, are, are you okay, right? Like, are you okay? Like, and, and are you happy? Are you content? Right? And this, this is so often pure selfishness. I prefer living with a happy person, and I really do care about her, so it's nice when she's happy, right? And this is what leads to the, you're unhappy? What's the problem? Let me fix it, right? Which, which can just be selfishness, and I can get upset when it's something that I just can't destroy and make her happy or content again, right? Because again, happy wife, happy life, I can just be pursuing my own peace, the fact that my wife is happy, and it's, it looks nicer to have a happy and content wife, right? But it can all still all be about me and selfishness. It's quite another thing, rather than just doing emotional checkups to say you are happy. Like I said, I can want a happy wife at a bargain deal rather than a flourishing wife at personal sacrifice. It's quite another to proactively think what's needed. How do I get to be a part of making her more glorious for the Lord? Right? So, so, so we don't want to just blend roles, and, and act like this should be a balanced relationship where, the, where, where, where there needs to be equal amounts of sacrificial love in this relationship. That's not Christ's model. Christ's model doesn't leave room for selfish, self-pity about having to give up stuff for wife and family. Right? Christ's model doesn't leave room for self-pity to having to give up stuff for wife and family and for them flourishing. So to sum up the first picture, Dudes, die, it's your duty and delight. It's a lot of Ds, right? But dudes, die, it's your duty and delight. And, and don't, don't forget the delight part, right? Because one, one more word here. There is a delightful, intimate picture here of Christ washing, cleansing his bride to present her to himself in splendor. It should be an attractive picture. So, so men, consider, what do you pour on your wife? What do you pour on her? How do your words leave her? Is it clean? Is it in accordance with God's Word, or is it soiled by the worldliness in your life? Do her interactions with you leave a good aftertaste? Do your words remove filth, fatigue, and restore and refresh? Right? We we want to give thought to that. So second, looking specifically at verses 28 and 30, We see identified and nourish, right? It says, love your wife as your own body. Give your wife attention and care, in other words. Cherish her and nourish her to be healthy. And this means, like, as close as your own body means a very intimate identification. And this intimate identification finds glorious expression in sexual intimacy and union. But Paul uses being one body here to capture so much more. 
the whole life together. So consider, how do you take care of your own body? Right? You, you listen to it if you're healthy. Right? You give attention to what, it fe- what, fe- what helps it feel good. You give attention to what suggests and supports its peak performance. So husbands, you must grow in listening well to your, li- to your wives. And, and some of us are very weak in this. And some of us are much more weak than we think we are because we realize that for some people to be a good listener means you actually need to say something. Like offer feedback, ask a question, and that's actually better listening than literally just listening. And and again, this intimate identification, like we are our own body, care for her as you care for your own body, means that we want to grow in such a way that it becomes increasingly instinctual, right? You should be intimately attuned to your wife and consider how we always know something's wrong when someone hurts their own body, right? It's, 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 it's really a sign of something going very wrong when someone gets a kind of pleasure or satisfaction or peace out of hurting their own body, and it is just as grievous and just as obviously unhealthy if you injure or tear down your wife with words or with actions or with a lack of words or with a lack of of actions. This body metaphor is rich and fruitful, and again, it shows us in all kinds of passages in Scripture that talk about the body working together in loving harmony. But, but one final point of wisdom here on this, on this image of the body is that someone pointed out to me recently is just like we all know, men, that our bodies are different, right? Wondrously different, different heights, different health, different needs, different strengths. So too, all of our wives are different So as we care for them, we can't simply try to copy and paste how another husband cares for his wife, right? We we don't want to simplify. Well, we do want to simplify being a husband to a formula, but we should not simplify it to being a formula. We must know our own wives, and we should always be humble enough to get input into how to do this, and realistic enough that, again, there's not a program, there's not a formula, and, and some of us are lazy, Some of us are very lazy, and we want caring for a woman in the image of God to just be more simple. But they are a mystery, and it's our duty and delight to seek out what will care for them best, right? But but those, but those duties and delights of dying to wash and glorify and identifying to make it, make the intimacy that magnifies Jesus and the gospel, Paul says. And that's a mystery, but it's true, right? So, so summing it all up, I want to focus on the focus of the passage now, right? Perhaps some of you are, are really annoyed at me for not focusing on it more so far, right? Or perhaps some of you aren't quite sure what I'm thinking about, right? But just look at the text. Look at the text at who actually is given the most space. Is it husbands or is it wives or is it someone else? Count the words. Okay, okay, don't count the words, because if you count the words right now, you might be distracted from hearing the words, right? But, but, but count the words. This passage is devoted to Christ. There are so many more words about Christ than there are about anything else, and honestly, it's already a trick question, because any of the words about the wife or about the husband, Paul tells us, are actually about Christ anyways. 
right? Working out headship and submission, the intricacies, the sexual intimacy in one flesh union, all of this is only a sign, a pointer, a foretaste, an emblem, a picture, a portrait, a mysterious proleptic manifestation of the never-ending love story of Jesus Christ and His church. So let us consider Jesus's love. Christ is our head. He leads us. He guides us. He gives us a mission And what a joy to be in His love and care. And for this reason, men, don't get too used to being a husband, right? Because if you are in Christ, you will be a bride forever. And ladies, you will all get to seriously marry up. We will lose all this passing, this passing, but this beautiful portrait of marriage and get the real thing. Who keeps looking at the signs when they're at the destination? And we won't, keep, we won't keep longing for a portrait when we see the person face to face. Christ is the one who gave Himself up for us. Jesus Christ died for our sins and was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. For our sake, Jesus Christ became sin, though He knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And Christ gave Himself up for us on the cross because it was necessary. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, needed to die because His bride wasn't ready to be united, to be married to a holy God. The bride's sins had to be dealt with. All of our selfishness, our irritability, our worldly use of authority, our rebellion to or complacency under authority, all of our sin had to be dealt with. So Jesus Christ, the only perfect husband, pursued winning his sin-stained bride not by wearing a tie, but he was stripped naked. He wasn't, didn't have a dearly beloved surrounding him, but mocking crowds. There weren't sighs of affection as he, won his di- as, as he won his bride, but only gasps of suffocation. There wasn't a golden ring to joyfully seal the commitment. The only metal were nails to seal God's wrath to him as he died with the separation from God's love that our sin deserves. And this Jesus, whom our sin crucified, could not stay dead because of His glorious perfection. And like the best hero from the best love story ever, He rose again from the dead and is drawing His bride to Himself, to the one true happily ever after. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me His praise should sing. You see, this is why. This is why we are happy to obey Him and His design for marriage. We are so loved. Right? For those of you who are here who are not Christians, I understand the Christian vision of marriage might seem weird or outdated at best. And and though there's much to commend it from many angles, can you at least try to taste why we want to live in this pattern even though living in it doesn't come naturally to any of us. We want to live in this vision because it is Christ's vision, and He is the lover of our souls. Jesus is so wonderful. 
so wonderful, and we trust Him with the details of our marriage. And He can be yours too. His love is divine. It doesn't know limitations. Every single sinner that says no to themselves and their sin and says yes to putting their whole hope and trust and life in Christ will be saved by Christ, swept off their feet and over the threshold of death itself into everlasting life. How could we not want to grow more and more into living in marriage according to His will and His design? And we could go on and on about the love of Christ. Friends, do you feel dirty and discarded because of the things that you have done that you know are wrong? Come to Christ. Look at His power. Look at the power of His cleansing in verse 26 and 27. He will, He will, Jesus will present you to Himself in splendor without stain or spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In Him, you can be more than just clean, right? And in our lives, oh, to be just clean, but you will be more than clean. You will be glorious because you will be His. And friends, do you ever feel lonely and isolated, left out, wondering if anyone sees you, if anyone cares about you? Does anyone know your suffering, your pain, your confusion? Consider that Christ loves you as His own body. Christ intimately identifies with His people and intimately as we identify ourselves with our bodies, and Jesus nourishes and cherishes us. And I emphasize this not as an aside or a rabbit trail to the text, but because it is the most essential part and point of this passage. Look again. In both the sections we covered, wives to husbands, the Christ is the model for a loving marriage, and Christ is the motive for a loving marriage. This is how to do marriage for Christ, unto Christ, an imitation of Christ, to show the world the glory of Christ. And it is only in living and looking to Christ that marriage can flourish and fulfill its purpose. To submit to and lead and cherish, to nourish, support, protect, husband and wife need to look beyond their marriage. They can't just stare at each other into each other's eyes like some corny love movie. That doesn't work. They need to be anchored to something outside of their marriage. And anchors don't work in a storm if you keep them in the boat. That is not the point of an anchor. Anchors only work because you want to find something outside of the boat. And in the storms of life, what better rock than the rock of Jesus Christ? Christ is the only anchor for living in marriage like this in the stormy seas of confusion and selfishness around marriage. And in that, I want to briefly close with an application for each of us. So husbands, look at verses 22 and 24. Pray that your wife would be captivated with Christ. Pray that she would know and abide in Christ, and so do all things as to Him, her glorious Lord, whether she eats or drinks or whatever she does, all to make much of Him. Pray for that. Wives, looking at verses 25 to 30, pray that your husbands would be wowed by the love of Jesus, motivated by His love for them 
and eager to imitate Him in humble dependence upon Him. Pray that your husband would fall in love with Jesus all over again. And all of you who are not married, look at verses 31 and 32. Pray for the marriages in this church and the marriages of all believers. Marriage is meant to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the devil hates the gospel, and so he targets marriages. There are traps and snares, bad habits and cold hearts, so pray that the Lord of love, the great shepherd of our souls, would make marriages flourish for his glory, that we might have them as a picture and a sign pointing us and the world to him and to our final union with Him when He comes again. Let's all pray together right now. Heavenly Father, we do ask that in Your mercy You would pour out Your Spirit according to Your Word and remake marriage in our minds, in our vision, but also, Lord, in the day-to-day moments of our lives. Lord, and would we support and defend and protect and, and live and flourish in marriage Uh, according to your word. And we ask you that you would keep us in prayer for this and that you would do it all to accomplish the glory of our beautiful Savior, Jesus. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, Contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.